Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be going over the work, The Immutability of God by Charles Spurgeon. Now, for those of you who do not know who Charles Spurgeon was, he was a Baptist Calvinist preacher in the 1800s. He's pretty popular, and on a lot of uh, Calvinist sites, they they quote him all the time. They treat him as some sort of Calvin-like figure, like one of their head people in the Calvinist faith. Charles Spurgeon, in my mind, represents all that is wrong with the Calvinist religion. He represents arrogance, self-righteousness, just just this ludicrous reading of the Bible where he just imposes his theology. You just listen to how he talks, and we're going to be going over one of his works and how he proof texts. And it's not biblical theology, it's his theology plus allusions to the Bible. Another author who does this is A.W. Pink, also a Calvinist figurehead. You're going to see this a lot in these Calvinist figureheads. This is how they treat the Bible. The Bible is just for reference, for proof texting their theology, rather than an in-depth study of how the text is being used by the author. The work that we're going to be addressing today was uh, given as a sermon in 1855 by Charles Spurgeon. And we're taking the audio from the hearspurgeon.com podcast So you guys don't have to listen to me talk the entire time. So I had all my kids on this car trip, right? And I thought, hey, I got all my uh, recordings on audio. I'm going to turn one on. I'm going to let my kids uh, listen to that. And uh, then they could get some sort of open theistic teaching. They could get some biblical teaching while we're in the car. So I turn it on. And sure enough, I look behind me and all my kids are passed out. So I'm like, huh. Maybe I got to redo that podcast and make that one more interesting. But this way, using other people's audio, you listening to them, you just won't have to listen to me the entire time. And that's fun. Just to make clear, audio recording wasn't invented till about 1877. So the guy that you're listening to is a modern guy just reading Spurgeon's work. But it's on the immutability of God, and let's listen to what Spurgeon writes. I am, says my text, Jehovah, for so it should be translated. I am Jehovah. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. All right, pause right there. So he's uh, turning to Malachi. He's proof texting Malachi. And what's the context of Malachi? God wants to destroy the sons of Jacob, but he doesn't. Now I'm going to let the listener guess whether Charles Spurgeon actually ever addresses the context and explains what's going on in that chapter and what it means in context. Or does he just pull it out of context and make some off-the-wall point that's not addressed in the text, which would be counter to the text if tried to put back into the context of Malachi? I'll let the reader decide right there. First of all, We have set before us the doctrine of the immutability of God. I am God. I change not. Here I shall attempt to expound, or rather to enlarge the thought, and then afterwards to bring a few arguments to prove its truth. I shall offer some exposition of my text by first saying that God is Jehovah, and he changes not in his essence. 
So there we go. Spurgeon thinks that the Malachi text is a proof text that God does not change in his essence. What in the text leads him to that conclusion? To me, this looks like a desperate attempt to find a proof text. I mean, this has got to be his best proof text for this, because this entire sermon's about God's unchanging nature and unchanging essence, and so he's probably going to use his best proof text. And if the context deals nothing with saying that it's about God's essence or, or about these other things he's going to expound upon, if the context is nothing about that, that means his theology is on very shaky ground. And he's just reading a ton of theology where it does not belong. And it furthermore tells us that this is not in the Bible. If his best proof text for his belief contextually says nothing about what he's trying to derive from the proof text. That means he has a weak, weak belief. We cannot tell you what Godhead is. We do not know what substance that is, which we call God. It is an existence. It is a being. But what that is, we know not. However, whatever it is, we call it his essence. And that essence never changes. The substance of mortal things is ever-changing. The mountains, with their snow-white crowns, doff their old diadems in summer in rivers trickling down their sides, while the storm cloud gives them another coronation. The ocean, with its mighty floods, loses its water when the sunbeams kiss the waves and snatch them in mists to heaven. Even the sun himself requires fresh fuel from the hand of the infinite Almighty to replenish his ever-burning furnace. All creatures change. Man, especially as to his body, is always undergoing revolution. Very probably there is not a single particle in my body which was in it a few years ago. This frame has been worn away by activity. Its atoms have been removed by friction. Fresh particles of matter have in the meantime constantly accrued to my body, and so it has been replenished. But its substance is altered. The fabric of which this world is made is ever passing away, like a stream of water, drops are running away and others are following after, keeping the river still full, but always changing in its elements. So that's a lot of talking. What material points is Spurgeon offering? Basically, he's just describing a bunch of change. And his point is that we shouldn't attribute any of this to God. Why? Because he says that this is what this verse is about. Where there's nothing in the verse to indicate that. And he's using all these rhetorical flourishes. This is why this is why I think that these Calvinists in the Spurgeon tradition are just like the Joel Olsteins of today's world. Joel Olstein, he'll talk a lot. He'll talk a lot about the prosperity gospel. He'll even make allusions to the Bible. He'll intersparse his allusions in his message. And the allusions, when you look at them, they seem to reinforce what he's saying. But it's not a biblical contextual study of the Bible. He's pulling out proof texts to meet his special theology, and he's using rhetorical flourishes to reach his audience. And then his audience says, oh, what a great and godly man, because look how well spoken he is. Look at all these nice, great things he says and the great, nice ways that he says them. Charles Spurgeon does this. R.C. Sproul does this. These Calvinists are the same people as the Joel Olsteinites with their prosperity gospels. It's not biblical theology. But God is perpetually the same. He is not composed of any substance or material, but is spirit. 
pure, essential, and ethereal spirit, and therefore he is immutable. He remains everlastingly the same. There are no furrows on his eternal brow. No age has palsied him. No years have marked him with the mementos of their flight. He sees ages pass, but with him it is ever now. So here Spurgeon describes what he means by God's essence does not change. And you know it, and I know what he means. But you talk to normal Calvinists and you say, well, Calvinists claim that God doesn't change in his essence, and they will purposely not understand you. They won't try to understand the people that you try to quote, and they'll say, oh, that just means he doesn't change in his moral character. That's not what they're talking about. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about that God can suffer no change in any sense. God can't be related to anything. Nothing. You listen to how he said this. Time cannot affect God. God can't, like, remember something. Like, after the flood, God said, This rainbow will remind me of the promise that I gave you. It will, in the future, remind me of the past. He's saying that's not a possibility. That's not a possibility. Time cannot affect God like that. God sees it as an ever-present now because to experience any time like that would be a change. This is what he means by God's essence is immutable. And note, this is not biblical theology. This is not Jewish theology. This is Platonism. This is pure Platonism. And Platonism says God cannot change in any fashion whatsoever. And this is what he means by God's essence does not change. He is the great I am, the great unchangeable. Mark you, his essence did not undergo a change when it became united with the manhood. When Christ, in past years, did gird himself with mortal clay, the essence of his divinity was not changed. Flesh did not become God, nor did God become flesh by a real, actual change of nature. The two were united in hypostatical union, but the Godhead was still the same. It was the same when he was a babe in the manger as it was when he stretched the curtains of heaven. It was the same God that hung upon the cross and whose blood flowed down in a purple river. The self-same God that holds the world upon his everlasting shoulders and bears in his hand the keys of death and hell. He never has been changed in his essence, not even by his incarnation. He remains everlastingly, eternally, the one unchanging God the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither a shadow of change. So a few things are going on in this text. The first thing we're going to address is the hypostatic union. Remember in Platonism, there are different levels of hypostasis. There was the realm of the one, there was the intellectual realm, and the realm of the spiritual, which was the material world. And the goal of a good Platonist was to return to the one, and the one is where there's no change. And so any other realm that's not the one is not God, but a lesser manifestation of the one. This is why he claims that Jesus in the flesh could not be God. He cannot be God, because the material world cannot be divine in this theology. And this is precisely what is combated in the Bible. Paul says that all the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus. It dwelt bodily because the divine is not the opposite of the material world in Christian and Jewish theology. 
In Platonism, it is. In Platonism, it is. And Charles Spurgeon is a Platonist. And this is where it really shines through. Let's also look at his proof text. He's making allusions. He's making allusions to Exodus 3, God saying, I am who I am. And he takes that as God's statement of his uh, pure actuality or pure acity. But turn to Exodus 3. Where is this explained? This is just assumed onto the text. All of Spurgeon's theology is assumption upon assumption. And Spurgeon will never turn to a Bible verse that explains how God is immutable in his essence and can never change in relation to time or in relation to people. He won't do it because it does not exist. There are no verses in the Bible that describe God's pure actuality with no potency or no potentiality, living in this eternal realm with no change and pure simplicity. You will not find it. It is not biblical theology. So every time he alludes to these principles, he's alluding to paganism, to Gnosticism, to Neoplatonism. The last allusion is an allusion to James, where it says that every good gift is from God, with whom there's no variableness or shadow of turning. So contextually, it's about God being true to his people. And Spurgeon, he takes this to be about God's essential essence, it's pure actuality, being outside of time. He says that it means that God can't be in relation to any creatures and God can't remember things. God specifically says, I'm going to, in the future, remember something about the past. And throughout the Bible, he remembers things in the past and he acts on knowledge. It, it's just not a biblical concept. And he thinks that in James, James is just slipping in this, uh, this proof text for immutability, this immutability of essence, what in the context calls for that? What in the context calls for it? There's nothing there. He changes not in his attributes. Whatever the attributes of God were of old, that they are now, and of each of them we may sing. This attribute talk is always kind of weird. So if you're talking about your friend, do you ever say, oh, let's list off his attributes? Well, maybe, um, but is like being kind, is that an attribute? Is being tall an attribute? You might talk like that, but it's, it's kind of a weird conversation. So what does Spurgeon mean by this statement about attributes? Sure, the Bible talks a lot about God's power, God's perfection. And when it talks about perfection, it's in the context of righteousness. And the Spurgeon folks, they'll take any statement about perfection as being about pure actuality. Because they're ingrained in their Platonism, and they don't look at the context to see what perfection means in context. It's about his righteousness. So God's powerful. God's righteous. God shows mercy. Jonah gives him an attribute, if you'd like to call it an attribute, of the God who repents. And Jonah's not making this up on his own. Jonah quotes Joel, and Joel says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and repents over disaster. Now, repentance is not something Spurgeon would attribute to God as an attribute, but the Bible does, and God is the number one repenter throughout the Bible. Repentance is just a change of mind. So when Paul calls on people to repent of idolatry, they're changing their mind and they're reorientating themselves toward God. When God repents of destruction, he was resolved on destruction of a city, perhaps like Nineveh, and then resolved not to destroy them. It's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. 
And this is all due to experiences in real time that's described in the text. No, but what Spurgeon means by attributes are these attributes that he assumes into the text without any contextual basis. Anything in the Bible explaining his attributes, describing how they work, how they function, you just will not find it in the Bible. You won't find it in the Bible. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Was he powerful? Was he the mighty God when he spoke the world out of the womb of non-existence? Was he the omnipotent when he piled the mountains and scooped out the hollow places for the rolling deep? Yes, he was powerful then, and his arm is unpalsied now. He is the same giant in his might. The sap of his nourishment is undried, and the strength of his soul stands the same forever. In this section, Spurgeon conflates God's power with God's unchangeableness. To have power is to do things that is totally inconsistent with unchangeableness. So in Plotinus, and Plotinus was a real Platonist, who really understood Platonism, and then the Christians, they came in and they bastardized Platonism, and they interjected all sorts of absurdities and to kind of fit the Bible a little bit more than Platonism does. But in normal Platonism, God could not act because God is totally immutable, impassable, a simple, outside of time, unaffected, and that type of being cannot act. So acting, doing stuff, being powerful is completely inconsistent with immutability. That is the opposite. But Spurgeon assumes, ridiculously, that one is linked to the other. Explain that. Was he wise when he constituted this mighty globe? when he laid the foundations of the universe? Had he wisdom when he planned the way of our salvation and when from all eternity he marked out his awe-filled plans? Yes, and he is wise now. He is not less skillful. He has not less knowledge. His eye, which sees all things, is undimmed. His ear, which hears all the cries, sighs, sobs, and groans of his people, is not rendered heavy by the years which he has heard their prayers. Again, Spurgeon just likes to talk, and he doesn't uh, source his opinions, and he believes that he could just create in his mind what he thinks is the best good. But throughout the Bible, we see a different picture of God, and God gets wearied from time to time. We see this especially in Isaiah and also Malachi, where the people weary God with their sacrifices and being evil. And God says, it wearies me. Check this out. In Judges 10, God says this, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. God withdraws his protection from Israel. He says, I will deliver you no more. And then what happens? The children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul, this is God's soul, could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So when Spurgeon pretends that God is in this timeless eternity, never experiencing actual give-and-take relationships through prayer with his people, that is not the picture of the Bible at all. God genuinely expects to do something and something to go a certain way, and then things change. God says, I will deliver you no more, then within, you know, I don't know, minutes, days, 
He changes his mind and saves them. He is unchanged in his wisdom. He knows as much now as ever, neither more nor less. He has the same consummate skill and the same infinite forecastings. Remember, the context of Malachi is God telling Jacob to repent. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. It's a give and take response relationship. And there's no assumption that God knows what they're going to do in the text. So all these things that he's bringing in, all these little rhetorical flourishes, they are nowhere found in the context. And he's all pulling this out of this single proof text. This is how their theology works. It's imposed onto the Bible where it does not belong. Now I'm going to fast forward real quick to skip a bunch of this talking, but this is how he talks and he goes on and on and on in this pseudo-scientific way where there's these allusions to the Bible that aren't real allusions. They don't deal with the context. They don't deal with what's happening. And it's all in furtherance of this theology that is not found or described in the Bible. Then again, God changes not in his plans. That man began to build but was not able to finish, and therefore he changed his plan, as every wise man would do in such a case. He built upon a smaller foundation and commenced again. <laughs> you guys you guys listen to that? He says that God does not start and then decide that it's futile and then cancel and then retry again. What does this sound like? It sounds to me like an exact duplication of of the parable that God gives about how he acts in Jeremiah 18. Now let's turn there real quick. Jeremiah 18.1, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I'll cause you to hear my words. And I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. Oh, okay, is this thing is this thing going to be completed? Let's read and figure this out. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he did get a complete what he attempted to first start to do. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good for the potter to make. So the first thing doesn't turn out how he wants it to make. And then he makes it into a different vessel. And so what? how does the Lord, how does God interpret this? He says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord. Look that clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up, to pull it down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build it up, to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I'll repent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. So the entire point that God is pressing is counter to Spurgeon's point. God is saying, yeah, if I'm trying to do something and then things change, I'm going to undo it and do something else. We're running out of time, so I'm just going to fast forward to more Spurgeon clips. But I like the person who's doing the audio for the Spurgeon clips, the passion that he gives to it. You could kind of imagine what it felt like to be in Spurgeon's audience, hearing this impassioned, emotion-filled, unbiblical, unsourced opinion uh, that mirrors Platonism and not the Bible. Yet again, God is unchanging in his promises. Oh, we love to speak about the sweet promises of God, but if we could ever suppose that one of them could be changed, we would not talk anything more about them. If I thought that the notes of the Bank of England could not be cashed next week, I should decline to take them. 
And if I thought that God's promises would never be fulfilled, if I thought that God would see it right to alter some word in his promises, farewell, scriptures. Real quick, Spurgeon's real-life example of his trust in money is an idiotic example. Because guess what? Money can change. Money can be inflated. Yet he still accepts the notes. So he's undermining his own point. You can definitely trust things even though those things have the ability to change. Second of all, we got plenty of counterexamples in the Bible of promises that God revokes, even promises that were supposed to be eternal. 1 Samuel 2.30, God says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. What happened here? God gave an eternal promise, but then it turned out that the people were so wicked, God could not in good faith fulfill his promise. And again, this is not saying that God just revokes all his promises arbitrarily. Jeremiah 18, we already talked about, God explains when and where and why he revokes promises. And the text is very explicit about it and God's conditions, and God does see fit to fulfill those conditions. But God's not immutable in his promises, even his promises that were supposed to last forever. He says, I said that you'd walk before me forever, but now far be it from me. He says, get that out of my mind. I don't want it near me. I am not going to be a slave to that promise because you guys are just so wicked that it's not applicable anymore. Uh, But fast forwarding Spurgeon again, we get to this gem. The very existence and the very being of a God seem to me to imply immutability. Let me think a moment. There is a God. This God rules and governs all things. This God fashioned the world. He upholds and maintains it. What kind of being must he be? It does strike me that you cannot think of a changeable God. I conceive that the thought is so repugnant to common sense that if you for one moment think of a changing God, the words seem to clash and you are obliged to say, then he must be a kind of man and get a Mormonite idea of God. I imagine it is impossible to conceive of a changing God. It is so to me. Others may be capable of such an idea, but I could not entertain it. I could no more think of a changing God than I could of a round square or any other absurdity. The thing seems so contrary that I am obliged when once I say God to include the idea of an unchanging being. Uh, Look at me. I'm Charles Spurgeon. And I think immutability is a super good thing. And any alternative to immutability is icky. And it's kind of like a Mormonite thing. And I don't like it. And I can't even conceive of it. And if you do conceive of it, you're probably stupid. Because I can't even think about something like that. Hey, Charles Spurgeon, if you don't like a God who changes, maybe the Christian religion is not for you. But that's not all, folks. He quotes Plato next. Well, I think that one argument will be enough, but another good argument may be found in the fact of God's perfection. I believe God to be a perfect being. Now, if he is a perfect being, he cannot change. Do you see this? Suppose I am perfect today. If it were possible for me to change, should I be perfect tomorrow after the alteration? If I changed, I must either change from a good state to a better, and then if I could get better, I could not be perfect now, or else from a better state to a worse. And if I were worse, I should not be perfect then. If I am perfect, I cannot be altered without being imperfect. 
Thank you, Spurgeon, but if we wanted Plato, we could have just turned straight to Plato. And here's Plato in The Republic. Surely God and the things of God are in every way perfect. Then he could hardly be compelled by external influence to take many shapes. If he change at all, he can only change for the worse, for we cannot suppose him to be deficient either in virtue or beauty. Then it is impossible that God should ever be willing to change, being, as it is supposed, the fairest and best that is conceivable. Every God remains absolutely and forever in his own form. I started to make a collection of these quotes, like the one that Spurgeon gives, about perfect being theology, where the perfect cannot change because then it would be less than perfect and wouldn't be perfect anymore. This is pure Platonism. You will not find this language in the Bible. You will not find these concepts in the Bible. They don't even make sense rationally. The perfect watch will always move. The perfect baby moves and changes. The perfect river changes. But perfection in the Platonic sense is tied to immutability, just, just how they think about the world. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. And they all make this same argument. I've heard it countless times from countless different people, Calvinists, Arminians. It's Platonism. How on earth do they think that this is a rational argument or idea? Where are they getting that? Again, there is the fact of God's infinity, which puts change out of the question. God is an infinite being. What do you mean by that? There is no man who can tell you what he means by an infinite being, but there cannot be two infinities. If one thing is infinite, there is no room for anything else, for infinity means all. It means not bounded, not finite, having no end. Well, there cannot be two infinities. If God is infinite today and then should change and be infinite tomorrow, there would be two infinities. But that cannot be. Really, there can't be two infinities? Have you ever taken a basic mathematics course? For sake of argument, let's just pretend all this talk about infinity is biblical language. It's not biblical language. It's not found in the Bible. These are Platonistic ideas, concepts that are foreign to Jewish thought. But let's just pretend that the biblical God is this concept of infinity. What precludes an infinite variation of infinities? There is nothing but your uninformed Platonistic assumptions that you bring not only to the Bible but into your concept of infinity. We're running out of time, but Spurgeon's entire sermon is maybe 40 or 50 minutes. The entire text is available for people to go through with a fine-tooth comb to see what he's saying and how he's saying it. I like this guy who does the voice recording. He puts a lot of passion into it. You could kind of feel how Spurgeon thought his fanaticism, his emotional arguments. So real quick, what do we learn from all of this is that Spurgeon is like many Calvinists. He likes to proof text. He likes to pull things out of context and make those texts about something that absolutely, there's nothing in the context of that verse that implies what he tries to apply to those verses. And his entire theology is based on a series of these proof texts that are linked together with his assumptions, with his assumptions. Immutability is not in the Bible and throughout the Bible, you have pretty clear and solid counterexamples that destroy all his points. All Spurgeon's points are destroyed throughout the Bible, several times over. Spurgeon was just a terrible theologian. And by terrible, I mean highly incompetent. Every time I see a Spurgeon quote pop up online, it's usually this terribly emotional point that has zero basis in reality.
And sometimes you even see these Calvinists deleting those memes when you start commenting on it and you talk about how irrational Spurgeon was. That's all the time we have for today. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to throw that on the God is Open website or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 